Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about God's relationship to Israel and what we can learn from it. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. The fact that you're listening to this tells me that you are probably either interested in our church or desire content that helps you grow in your relationship with God. And if these things are true for you, either one of them, subscribing to our YouTube channel is worth your time. We post content that doesn't really work in audio form, so you won't hear it here. And recently I've been doing these videos I call the Bible Breakdown, where I use my iPad to like write on a Bible passage that I preached on the previous Sunday, and I just kind of explain some of the things that I found interesting from it. The one connected to this sermon will go out in a couple of days. Also, one of our pastors has recently done a series called Apologetics for the 21st Century. It has been super helpful in clarifying really why it is logical to be a Christian and how we can show others that in a way that is actually valuable to them. The Bible Breakdown and this course are both available on YouTube, so again, I invite you to subscribe. You can do that by going to youtube.com slash creekside2 or by searching for us on YouTube, Creekside Bible Church. One more time, it's youtube.com slash creekside2. I hope you'll do it. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Is, is God just? Is God fair? And there's a lot of reasons we can ask that, you know, in the last year. Like, is it fair that some churches have a building and some don't? And is that God being unfair to us? But I think the bigger and maybe biggest way that we ask that question is, uh, is it fair that God is merciful and gracious to some and not to others? That his grace is poured out on some and not others? And that is a question I think that, man, is a hang-up for many. And some don't even become Christians and some struggle in their Christianity because of that question. And I think in, in some ways that question is answered for us today. It may not be uh, the central point of what we're going to see. It may not be about salvation. That would be argued amongst these groups. But it does answer the question of whether God is just, whether God is fair. And that's where it begins in Romans 9.14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. It's an important question, right? And and people wrestle with it. And as we begin to see Paul's answer, because he says not at all, but he doesn't really give you the reasons until later. But as you look at the reasons, it's important to remember what we talked about last week, two weeks ago, I guess, because we didn't have any church last week. And that is the entire presentation of the gospel as Paul describes it and talks about it in the book of Romans has the backdrop of the relationship between Israel and the church. Uh, Paul is responding in some ways to a common criticism that he faced while he did ministry, and that is that he was anti-Israel, which is funny because he was a Jewish man. At the beginning of Romans 9, he said, I, I love my people so much that I would be damned to hell for more people to become Christians. And here is a continuation of that as Paul answers the question of God's justice, of God's fairness. And uh, the New International Commentary on the New Testament it says, Paul is not simply using Israel to illustrate a theological point, such as predestination or righteousness of God. He is talking about Israel herself as he wrestles with the implication of the gospel for God's chosen people of the Old Testament. Keep that in mind. 
Ben Witherington III says, though it was not the intended effect of Paul's discourse up to this juncture, most everything that Paul has said up to now in one way or another raises questions about the status of Israel, especially if righteousness or being set right is obtained through faith in Christ, and if Israel by and large has rejected Christ. So Paul says that, that salvation justification, sanctification. It comes through faith in Jesus. And most of the Israelites, most of his people have rejected Jesus. And so everybody's wondering, like, well, what about Israel? And Paul is answering that question in many ways in, in Romans 9 and, you know, even into verse, uh, chapters 10 and 11. Specifically, Paul has already said that not all Israelites received the promises made to Israel. And that is what is in mind when Paul says, well, then is God unjust? What should we say about it? And we ask the question, well, is it fair? Is God fair to have mercy and grace, has mercy and grace bestowed on some and not others? And, and Paul says, well, God is absolutely just. And then he's going to explain in Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Paul answers a very difficult question. Does this mean God is unjust or unfair? By pointing to God's mercy. One author said that Paul defends God's justice by showing God's mercy. Let's not miss this. Mercy is a very important word here in Romans 9 through 11. In fact, Paul uses the word mercy seven times in these three chapters, and he only uses it five or six other times in all of his writings that are recorded in the Bible for us. In those five or six times, Paul always connects that mercy to what he has received from God. There's one kind of, you know, questionable one where he actually says that a sick person received the mercy of God, and as an extension of that, he received mercy. But it's always about what he has received, and I think that's because this is, this is what mercy is, biblically. It's the desire to relieve the miserable while striving to relieve the distress if able. So let me describe the difference between, you know, maybe... Um, compassion and and mercy. Compassion is looking at a person that is suffering and thinking, that's sad. Mercy is looking at a person that is suffering and thinking, that is sad and I want to do something about it and I will do something about it if I'm able. For example, you see a hungry person, right? And, and a hungry person, a lot of people would drive by and feel something, compassion. Like, I wish that person had enough food. But a merciful person drives by, says, I wish that person had enough to eat, checks their pockets to see if they have the money to feed that person, and if they do, goes to buy them food and brings it back to them. That's mercy. And Paul, in his writings, is you know, driven by the fact that God has been merciful to him. God saw him in his sinful, suffering, selfish state. And instead of leaving him there, came, grabbed him and said, you know what? I am going to relieve the suffering that you face. He showed up, he met Paul on a road and, and said, come into my kingdom. And Paul did. And, and Paul, when he uses mercy, it's about how God relieved his misery, his misery. And so Paul says, is God just? Is God fair? Well, let's remember this. God has mercy. God is merciful. 
But even in this, even in Paul's answer here, it says it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy on. Well, then, is God fair? Is God fair? Is God just in having mercy upon whom he wants to have mercy? Here's what Paul says as he asks that question. And as we ask that question, I should say, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. What? Wait, I thought Paul was saying that God was fair. I thought he was defending God's justice. Isn't that what Paul is doing here? And so a couple of things to keep in mind. First, In the story of Pharaoh, which you can read in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his own heart before and during God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We'll come back to that in a second, but before we do, notice that this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart actually connects to something we've already read in the book of Romans. Romans 2, 24 and 26, you can read 25 on your own, says uh, these two things. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, and God gave them over to their shameful lusts. One of the things that we talked about in the book of Romans is that in some ways, God's pouring out of his wrath, while we are still alive on this earth, is actually just letting people give in to their sinful desires. God's wrath in some ways is connected to people rejecting him and saying, you know what, I want to serve my own gods, I want to worship my own things, and I want to do my own thing, and I'm going to do what I want, and not what God wants from me, and, and, and sometimes God then says, okay, fine, okay, fine, and this is one of the ways that God pours out his wrath, is letting us, letting people give more and more into the sinfulness that that exists inside of them, letting people give more and more into the pervasiveness that exists in humanity. And this is connected to Pharaoh. I mean, you know, this question becomes, well, what's it exactly talking about here? Is it just talking about something temporal on this earth, or is it about salvation? And these two groups would argue about this, but but it's important to understand that that in some ways this is a warning for us. In the story of Pharaoh, there's this back and forth kind of deal. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh hardens his own heart, then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And, and, and here's what the Bible Project says about it. When human evil goes unchecked, bad things happen, and bad people can sometimes turn into monsters. The author of Exodus is showing us that Pharaoh was responsible for the evil in his heart. At a clear point in the story, after Plague 5, he crossed a point of no return. At this point, God repurposes this vessel, as Paul puts it in Romans 9, for his own good purposes. The point of this story is not to tell us that God engineers evil. Rather, it is a cautionary warning to you, the reader, saying, don't be like Pharaoh. It is clear that like Pharaoh, we are responsible for our own evil choices. And it is clear that we should not be, we ought not be like Pharaoh. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart to God. Because if you do, God may harden your heart more. He may let you dive deeper into your sinfulness and your rejection of him in order that he might display his glorious purposes on this earth. That's that's what the reference to Pharaoh is about. You see in the story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then at some point, as we just read, 
God says, you know what? If you're just going to keep rejecting me, my will and my ways, then I'm going to use you as a vessel in order to, to dispense my mercy upon all of my people, these Israelites, to set them free from the bondage that they are under. Because of you, Pharaoh, I'm going to set them free and I'm going to turn them into my people and my nation. I'm going to do all these glorious things in their lives. And if you're not going to be on my side, I'll harden you in such a way to use you for my great, glorious, loving purposes. But again, is that fair? I mean, how can he harden Pharaoh's heart? And apparently he can harden whoever's heart he wants, but if he does that at least once, I mean, come on. Like, is that fair? And I'd say, first, God never hardens in the Bible at all. Anybody's heart who hasn't already hardened their hearts towards God. But beyond that, here's what Paul says. So you ask, well, is that fair? He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Is it fair? For who is able to resist his will? I mean, God can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy, but but does that make God unjust in blaming us for the things that we do wrong? Should you and me be blamed for the things that we do that are against the will and nature of God if, if maybe God has hardened us? Here's his answer. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Show what is formed, say to the one who formed it. Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Now, it is virtually impossible for me, maybe it's not impossible for you, but it's virtually impossible for me to read this passage of Scripture without thinking about the debate, the argument, the the wide cavern that exists between Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, these are, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, these are two theological schools of thought. And one of the ways that they are different, Calvinism and Arminianism, is really this question of whether or not God conditionally or unconditionally chooses who gets to receive his mercy, who gets to receive his grace. And this argument between Calvinists and Arminian people really comes down to this thing that I've already mentioned in this sermon series, but I think because of the difficulty in this passage that is centered around this argument, it is important to bring it up again, and that is this Latin word, ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation. Now, the, the reason I'm bringing this into my sermon, because you're like, this, is, this sounds boring already. He said a Latin word. I remember some uh, teacher at Whitaker Middle School who was so focused on Latin words, and nobody liked being in her class because she was hard. She was probably, you know, the best teacher of them all. But, but nobody, come on, you're thinking, oh, I didn't want to hear a Latin word today. But here's the problem with this passage. A Calvinist comes to it and says, this is absolutely the key passage to, to explain why we believe what we believe. I mean, look, it's saying, doesn't the potter just have the right to make some, some people for glory and some for destruction? And so it's clear that God, you know, has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And there's no, there's no background. It's totally unconditional. And an Arminian comes to this passage and you read them in the commentaries and they say, Basically, let me tell you why this isn't about what Calvinists think it's about. And frankly, as I read, you know, in preparation for this sermon, some 
great argument on the Calvinistic side. That there's merit, and it's like, wow, I, I see what they're saying here. And, and then the Arminians, you know, there's great merit there, and it's very complicated. And I'll tell you, uh, just to make it very simple before we jump into the order of salvation, Calvinists say, well, this is about salvation. And people on this side, the Arminians, they say, this isn't about salvation. This is, this is only about Israel and, and what's happening in the nation of Israel. And, and you could make a case both ways. But because, because every, I mean, if you go look at this passage of Scripture anywhere, you will find these two sides just pulling against each other in their explanation of the passage. And so I want to come back to the order of salvation because this is really what the whole argument is about. And then I'm going to, I'm going to say what I think this whole passage is about in the first place. And so here's, um, here's kind of how Calvinists see the order of salvation. Now, this isn't the order in our lives. This is the order. I mean, p- part of it connects to our lives. But this is like the order before the creation of the world. You know, in, in God, this is kind of the order of how things you know, took place in, in a Calvinist mind. And so uh, you have predestination. And so predestination is the idea, a scriptural idea, that God uh, destines some people for salvation. Now there is something called hyper-Calvinism that says, you know, God just picks who goes to heaven and hell. And um, but, but most Calvinists, at least the ones I hang out with, and I think most, they're, they're, when they're talking about predestination, they're saying God predestines some for heaven. And he allows for others uh, to be eternally damned. Now, after predestination, you have election that is absolutely, and I said this, unconditional. And so both of these things now, unconditional, have nothing to do with, with people. And then you have a calling on that person's life. And then, this is where it gets different here, uh, very different from over here. You have, uh, we'll call it born again, but regeneration, it's a long word to write that I have to think about how to spell. Uh, you have born again, an idea that's common to us. And then after all this down here, we have faith. Regeneration is like, yeah, um, we have faith. And so uh, we have all that there. And then we go repentance. And then we have, we have um, justification. Looking at my notes so I get it all right. Okay, so that's how that works, you know, history, the order of salvation. And then on the other side over here, uh, you have the Arminians who, who, you know, believe, because they're in the Bible, many of these things, but the order's different. And so instead of that, you have, and this is really the key right here, you have foreknowledge. I don't know if anybody can read this, but I hope you can. You have foreknowledge, and then you have calling. And then you have repentance. That's right, repent. And then you have faith. Did I, get, I did that wrong. <laughs> and then you have uh, election. And then you have justification. And then you have regeneration. Now, as you look at this, you, you might be bored out of your mind, but you see that the, some of the words are the same, but the order of them is vastly different. And so a Calvinist comes to this passage and they say, look, 
I mean, we see the clear language here. It's, it's clear that, that, you know, God created some, and this all took place, you know, and we, it's just, this is the line. It all, it, God predestined, elected, called, you know, allowed you to be regenerated, all that stuff in that order, and, and it's, it's so clear here. Now, but a person who is Arminian comes over and says, well, it's all based on God's foreknowledge, and, and the, this is a passage about Israel, and so they just immediately start defending. And, and really, the, the, the question is, uh, I think we can all agree on, on the primary thing at hand, and we'll get to that in a second, but the question is, is there in this passage an extension, because this is what Calvinists would say, there is an extension to how salvation works and the order of salvation in Romans 9. And on the other side, you would have people who say, this is Israel. Israel. And that's it. But as we look at this passage, I think it's important to remember, first of all, some things that aren't in this passage. First of all, salvation comes by faith in Jesus. Both sides agree. That's it. That's how you become a Christian. This is absolutely clear in Romans. All Christians are called. We have calling in both of this. Whether we agree or disagree on, you know, where that calling happens, all Christians are called. What a glorious thing to be called, to be chosen by God. Every person is responsible for their decision to follow Jesus or not. It's not like we can look at God and say, it's your fault, I didn't accept you. And every Christian has an obligation to tell others about Jesus. We'll see that in Romans 10 quite clearly. And so this question of order of salvation really drives whether a person sees this just about Israel or about salvation in general, extending from this conversation about Israel. But for us and, and me as a preacher, I have to come back to the question, not like, can I give you a theological lesson and, and pick a side, which you know I love not doing but what is the question that Paul is asking and answering? Is God unjust for not saving all of the Israelites? And then is God wrong for blaming people for rejecting him? And the answer is no on both accounts. And, and to say no, Paul quotes the Old Testament and he gives this analogy of a potter. The village potter wheel was a common picture, you know, for an Israelite. They would see this and and the illustration actually comes from the Old Testament. Listen to Jeremiah 18.6. God said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. All right, well, you know, that's pretty Calvinistic feeling right there, right? If you were paying attention. But listen to like the verses that follow. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on... It, the disaster I had planned. And if at the, another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will consider the good I had, in, then I will consider the good I had intended to do for it. Well, that sounds pretty Arminian, doesn't it? Paul also you know, has Isaiah 45, 9 in mind. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Now part of the difficulty in all of this is even in this one verse that these two groups just take in such different ways. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Uh, BibleRef.com, didn't know it existed before this week, but it shows the 
the difficulty of this one verse and how people take, you know, two, one of two sides on it uh, when it says this about this. Is God patiently enduring these persons until the time comes for them to be destroyed? Or is God patiently enduring to make time for some to repent and be revealed as the vessels of mercy described in the following verses? And the Greek allows for both. And so Calvinist says, look, they've been prepared. God is patient and he is waiting to the moment when they are destroyed so that he can reveal his glory to those who have been saved, his graciousness to those who have been saved. On the other side, there are many who say, well, the Greek allows for this to say that God, he knows that some people are vessels of of destruction, but he's being patient in order that they might have faith, and then they can be elected and justified and born again, and, and, and so that's what this is about here. And so you see, even in that one verse, that people begin to argue about it. Now, this is what I think is key from a strong Calvinist. Uh, John MacArthur says that prepared for destruction, he points out, that prepared for destruction is passive. And this contrasts, the reason that's important is it contrasts with whom he prepared in advance for glory, which is active. And it's quite clear to, to both sides, I think, unless you're a hyper-Calvinist, which most aren't, to both of these sides, it is quite clear that Paul, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying some people are prepared for destruction. They are preparing themselves for destruction by their sinfulness and the rejection of God. And then God comes along and he prepares some for glory. He prepares some for glory. It is not God preparing people for destruction. It is them. It is their sin. Charles Hodge says it, says it this way. It is nowhere suggest, this nowhere suggests that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but rather that he has the right to deal with sinful beings according to his good pleasure, either to pardon or to punish them. This is a really key point, and we're going to come, uh, it's going to keep moving forward in, in verse 25 and beyond, but, but what Paul is saying here in some ways is that, that, God, that God is not the one who prepares people for destruction. I think that's clear, and I'll just take a side here. I'm not a hyper-Calvinist, I can tell you that. People prepare themselves for destruction by rejecting God. We all agree. That's what Paul's saying here. That is people pre prepare themselves for destruction by their sin and by rejecting God, by you know worshiping idols, by serving self. And therefore, if God chooses to come along and prepare any of those people, any of us, if God chooses to bestow his grace upon any of us, then it goes way beyond fair. It makes him incredibly gracious and loving because we each have made ourselves children of wrath. And so if God saves any, then you can't be like, oh, he's not fair. No, you have to be like, he's incredibly gracious. Here's how it continues, Romans 9, 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to, to them, you are not my people... There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the glory, sorry, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah has said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. 31% of Paul's Old Testament scripture references are in Romans 9 through 11. And one of those here, Paul is saying to the people that non-Israelites being brought into the promises of God is not a new idea. Paul's saying, look, God told us that 
Gentiles were going to be a part of these promises long ago. And another one that, that I just read, Paul is saying that it was predicted that a majority of Israelites would reject God, that a majority of Israelites would reject God. And so you have these two sides, right? Israelites and, and Israelite people are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like I'm an Israelite, I should automatically get in. It's not fair if God doesn't let me in. And on the other side, they're saying, well, wait a minute, it's not fair the Gentiles get in here. And Paul, Paul is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you really questioning whether God is just? Because really you should see that God is incredibly merciful, incredibly gracious, incredibly loving, as he says in that last section, that God is loving. I love what the message of Romans, I've quoted this book before in this series, I love what it says. It says, the wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. The wonder is that anybody is saved at all. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 describes how we who are Christians, you know, were children of wrath. Listen to this. All of us who lived among them, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath. We were children of wrath. We were vessels of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Because of his great love for us. It is so easy to turn this passage into you know, a defense of Calvinism or, you know, or just to focus on arguing against Calvinism. But the question in Paul's mind is God just, is God fair in saving some and not others? And Paul's answer to the question of whether God is fair is simply this. It's simply this. God, if he saves anybody, is not only fair, he is incredibly merciful and gracious and loving Here's, 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 here's what we believe as Christians. And I think it's at the center of this passage. I don't think this is at the center of this passage. This was not written, you know, with the backdrop of Luther or Calvin or Ar- Armini, Joseph Arminius. I mean, this was not written uh, with that background in mind. It was written in first century Christianity when Jews were like, hey, is it fair that I'm not in? Or, you know, or is it fair that some Jews aren't in? Or the Gentiles get in? And, and Paul brings us back to this incredible idea that we, this is what we believe as Christians, that we people, every single one of us, is absolutely sinful and deserving of God's wrath. And God created us. And God created us and we rejected him. We sinned against him. We, we you know, became his enemies by our own choices. And therefore, some people are destined for an eternity in hell, they are condemned, a destined for an eternity of condemnation and damnation. That's not God's fault. And we could focus there and say, well, that's bummer, and I can't believe God would let us and all that. But, but God, you know, the fair, the, the, the easy thing, the thing that God could have done, just say goodbye. Like, it's just, that's it, I don't care. 
But because of his great love and mercy and grace, Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins. That's what Paul's been describing for us. Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins. God's grace was poured out on the cross and therefore we who accept it, accept that gift, who place our faith in Jesus, we are, 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 are forgiven. And we become children of God instead of children of wrath. The wonder of it all is not that some are condemned. The wonder of it all is that any get to be saved. So as you question, like, is it fair that, yes, it's absolutely fair that God, that God lets people reject him and be condemned. They've chosen it, not him. But as you think about whether or not God is fair, you must, you must, you must consider the grace and the mercy and the love of God who would send his one and only son to die for our sins so that we might be saved, so that we can be more than conquerors in Christ who love who loves us, who loves us. When you ask whether or not God is fair, it must draw you to a place where you say, well, well, he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is loving. And for those of you who aren't Christians, you accept that gift, and you place your faith in him. And I can guarantee that if you place your faith in him, you are predestined, elect, and called. You are born again. You are justified. You are saved. No matter the order, you are those things if you place your faith in Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians and we wrestle, is God fair? Is he fair? Is it fair? Is it just that he lets some people go to hell? Our minds must be drawn to the fact that the real, the real struggle for us should be, how is it fair that he lets any of us into his kingdom at all? I think, I think we must personalize this. We must be people who, who say, is it fair that God sends some, that God allows for some to be condemned? And then we must look at ourselves and say, you know what's not, you know what's difficult, you know what's a struggle, is that I get to be saved. That God poured out his ridiculously amazing grace upon me. That's, that's the hard thing to fathom. The hard thing to fathom is not that God allows for those who reject him to reject him all the way into eternity. The real, the real struggle is to understand how God would let a person like me, let a person like me be forgiven by his incredible grace and, and let a person like me not face his wrath but become a vessel of, of mercy and glory and love. That's, that's the harder question. When you question whether God is not fair or not, you must remember the incredible mercy that was bestowed upon us through Jesus.